Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt. Uh, I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Uh, my research interests are media archaeology, cultural theory, and Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a Catholic PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And right now, my research interests are learning about all the people that won elections yesterday, I guess. That's what I'm trying to figure out real quick. Oh, yeah. uh shout out to socialists who won real life seats in places that's really cool you done did it you're making us proud over here (laughs) um (laughs) socialism will not be elected but also like give it a try yeah i i'm open to it yeah it wouldn't be the worst thing no it would be a good (laughs) one a good thing to happen i think (laughs) um matt what have you been up to this week um i've had a crazy busy week crazy busy semester um man i'm super excited for thanksgiving break we have thanksgiving break isn't that weird i feel like usually people don't have that but we have like an entire week off for thanksgiving wow that's a long and thing yeah it is it's super long students were like losing their mind about it and they're like oh man so excited no class i'm like if you think you're excited let me tell you (laughs) about my excitement level here's a Um, pile of homework (laughs) <laughs> yeah i did actually assign two things in my one of my classes last night they have to have done after that break so i feel a little bit bad but not too bad anyway so that's <laughs> coming up looking forward to it um also i had a really great time earlier this week uh richard gilman opolsky uh came to speak at my university on incarceration race and revolt and it was so good oh my Sounds gosh awesome. Yeah, dude. Um, it was it was good for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, I got to hang out with him for a few hours, and that was very fun. Um, he's like the nicest person on the planet, um, mm-hmm. and that's <laughs> that's cool. Um, he gave this great talk, though, um, that kind of reiterates a lot of things that we've said in this podcast before about him, and uh, that uh, is contained within his newest book, Specters of Revolt. Go check it out. Seriously, if you haven't bought it and read it yet, I don't know what you're doing. Um, anyways, the, the main point was just that, uh, like, uh, people should just not discount revolt immediately as like um, irrational or like something that is kind of like um, just like done for less than logical reasons that you should listen to revolt because they're actually, you know, are philosophical acts that can tell you something. Um, and that is such a cool idea. And I think um, everyone needs to hear that all the time. Yeah, that's good. Especially at an evangelical school. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, there definitely was a little bit of uh, conservative pushback, but um <laughs> but it got taken care of <laughs> there were some there were some uh pretty weird comments um but uh it was good uh richard uh gave some great and charitable responses um that's cool sometimes yeah i mean sometimes you think that like oh man marx marxists are such like angry people but uh richard is literally the nicest person i've ever met in my entire life so <laughs> i don't know so and he's also super patient so there you go <laughs> i mean i guess that's what you have to be if you're like a student or a teacher you have to be yeah. really patient with people so, uh, that uh, just reminds me of that um, that time that Herbert McCabe talked about how the Sermon on the Mount makes you a good comrade because people want to work with people who are nice and and good to each other. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's cool. Yeah, um, super cool. I also saw that you uh, you got interviewed by your school newspaper about the uh, yeah. guest. That's pretty cool. That was really funny. Um, <laughs> one of my one of my fave one of my fave students. Uh, gina sanders uh came and asked me if she could do like a podcast interview with me and i was like oh of course um because gina is like she's really cool and really smart and uh she asked some really good questions um so uh if you guys are out there you can check our twitter page for that a link to that and hear me talk about uh, the magnificast it's nothing you probably (laughs) don't know but it's uh it was fun 
Uh, yeah, it is fun. You do uh, uh, let out the secret that we just uh, don't care about our Facebook account at all. So yeah, that's, sorry, that's public Cat's, now. Sorry, everyone. Cat is out of the bag. Uh, Facebook <laughs> is dumb, and I don't care about it. <laughs> man, um, it's just hard to, hard to get things on Facebook. It is. It's so tedious. I don't know, man. There's so many things to post. If they could just all be one thing, it would be great. But they aren't. It would. It would be great. This week, what have I been doing? Uh, I yeah. have been. Um, still getting over being sick. I've still got it in my my throat a little bit. That's not great. But uh, one cool thing that happened at the Institute for Christian Studies, we hosted a woman named Kate Hennessy, who is the granddaughter of Dorothy Day. And she came to give a talk about a book that she wrote about Dorothy Day and about her mom and about uh, the Catholic worker. And that was really cool and super fun. We recorded it. RCS is going to have a podcast, which is really neat. So um, hopefully it won't be too long until that's on the internet somewhere. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to hearing that. That's so cool. Yeah, she was awesome. Uh, you should all read her book, actually. I mean, The Catholic Worker is a very cool Christian leftist institution, basically. <laughs> but she, I don't know, just, I mean, she has an interesting perspective on it by virtue of it being like a, a part of her family history and not just, you know, a thing that she got into because she was like a young like lefty catholic or something the way that most people do so yeah really cool like intimate portrait of that whole movement yeah that's really neat dang we'll uh we'll retweet that once it comes out because that sounds like something i want everyone to know about yeah it's good um before we get started i want to make a quick note uh about some really important magnificast uh news and that is that we're getting buttons Oh yeah, we are getting that, buttons. That's right. We're getting some. We're getting. We're getting a big bag of good buttons. And uh, if you want one, um, you can become a patron, and then uh, we'll give you one. We'll send you one. And uh, I think that's how. You, I think that's how you do Patreon. Really, is that you're supposed to give people things, but we haven't really <laughs> done that yet. Um, so we have a lot of good uh, patrons that have been supporting us, and we appreciate that so much. Uh, so in the next few weeks, you guys uh, will be uh, getting your earthly, earthly reward here. Uh, don't store it up or anything, but uh, you'll be getting a good button in the mail from the Magnificast. That's so right. So that's uh, really one, cool. One day it will be a victim of moth and rust, like all things. But uh, until then, <laughs> right. it will be a very cool addition to your jean jacket or, or backpack. Yeah, thanks for completing that joke for me. I didn't quite get through all the way with uh, store, <laughs> storing up your treasures on Earth, but <laughs> I appreciate you know, that. It's, just, uh, it's all part of this uh, collective revolutionary consciousness. We're on the same page. You just got to help <laughs> each other right. fill it out. That's so, right. It's all dialectical, right? Yeah, that's how the jokes get done after communism. Is, uh, you, have to wait for your, you have to wait for your friends to finish them for you. <laughs> that's right. Oh, man. Communist late night TV is going to be so good. Oh, gosh. Uh, yep, I hope so. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's let's think of a, a segue here. Maybe we don't have one. Um, maybe that is the segue. Thinking of one and then not having one. Oh, hey, here's a good segue. Um, so at the beginning of this, Dean uh, gave a good shout out to all those uh, those those nice DSA folks who won an election the other day. Um, speaking of people who are socialists and who win elections, uh, <laughs> let's talk about oh, Allende nice. for a second. Yeah, I know that was a good segue. I feel very strongly about that one. As you should. Uh, so, you should do the yeah. segues from now on. You've earned it. I don't just that one. That was a good one. I don't know. <laughs> um, so Allende was uh, an important socialist figure in South America. He was like the first elected Marxist uh, in Chile, and um, uh, a really interesting figure. Um, after that 
that uh, election in Chile, though, um, a really interesting thing happened within the Catholic Church, um, and I guess churches in general. Christians, Christians in general, uh, tended to pay attention to this election in Chile. Uh, <laughs> unsurprising, Protestants and Catholics. Um, so I guess the interesting thing is that uh, after the election uh, of Allende, uh, a lot of Christians kind of jumped on that uh, that good socialist bandwagon and started uh, a sort of movement that uh, kind of spread across South America and eventually into North America. We'll talk about that in the future, but not this week, um, called Christians for Socialism. Isn't that neat? So uh, this episode, we're going to pick up on that thread about Christians for Socialism. This is initially something we read about in that Fidel, uh, Fidel and Religion book, but now we're going to kind of explore it a little bit deeper here. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, Christians for Socialism, uh, what, what that was about, what it looked like in uh, Chile, and then um, some, uh, some thoughts about it um, from a really uh, someone I didn't know about until very recently. Uh, but uh, Gonzalo Ario, uh, who is a uh, Marxist economist and also a Jesuit. So um, we've got some history stuff here, and there's also some like sort of like liberation theology stuff going on here. Uh, so Dean, do you want to start and kind of tell us about the history of what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, so in Chile, the the kind of watershed moment, I guess, is when a group of 80 priests got together and they were trying to think about how to support the Allende government in a way that was authentic to their own ministry as priests, but also authentic to their own, um, uh, you know, sympathies as actual socialists. And most of them worked in places that were super poor in Chile. And, you know, they had been thinking really hard about how to solve those problems materially and not just, you know, minister to those people. And that was uh, a motivating factor in trying to figure out how to support the Allende government. And it's a pretty interesting moment because a lot of these priests had uh, watched what had happened in Cuba, where the Catholic Church was not present as a revolutionary force, and they didn't want that to happen in Chile. And they felt, like we talked about last week, that it wasn't totally unreasonable that the Catholic Church had been somewhat disciplined by the Cuban government, the revolutionary government. And they thought, well, there's no reason that has to happen. And if the church was actually supportive of socialist uh, policies, then there would be no need to discipline it in that way. And surprise, they were right. Uh, they actually formed a very significant um, contingent of Allende supporters. And then also, uh, eventually, when... Allende was overthrown by Pinochet. They, uh, the Christians for Socialism, served as a really important resistance um, group, or able to organize resistances really well. Anyway, so there's a lot uh, of history in between all that, obviously, but that's kind of the the short of it. You know, they flared up when Allende was coming on the scene, and then after Pinochet, they, uh, at least in Chile, were ultimately disbanded because of um, a fascist regime. But uh, really fascinating, high octane couple of years there. Yeah, I think what's so cool about this movement is that it basically proves what Fidel said right um, in terms of like the antagonism, the antagonism between uh, Christians and socialists. Uh, insofar as like you know, I, I mean, Fidel says like it, it didn't like have to be this way. That you know, the reason that they seized the schools or whatever was not because they're Christian, but because they're reactionary. And here we see like Christians who are not reactionary and not being a problem for the government. So there you go. To shed a little bit of light about like kind of like what the feel of this movement is, um, I'm going to read a little bit here from uh, the declaration that were, that was signed by the the eighty priests. Is that cool? Yeah, totally. All right. So this is kind of from the middle. Uh, this is my favorite part. 
um and maybe we can even read another part after this because it's all it's all my favorite part i, I guess <laughs> uh it's hard just to have one okay so this is from uh, the middle of the document uh and here it says as christians we do not see any incompatibility between christianity and socialism quite the contrary as the Cardinal of Santiago said last November, there are more evangelical values in socialism than there are in capitalism. Not evangelical in the American sense, but in like the good sense. Um, <laughs> uh, the fact is that socialism offers new hope that man can be more complete and hence more evangelical, uh, more, con- uh, more conformed to Jesus Christ who came to liberate us from any sort of bondage. Thus, it is necessary to destroy the prejudice and mistrust that exists between, between Christians and Marxists. To Marxists, we say that authentic religion is not the opiate of the, of, of the people. It is, on the contrary, a liberating stimulus to revivify and renew the world constantly. To Christians, we offer a reminder that our God committed, its, uh, committed himself personally to the history of human beings. And we say that at this present moment, loving one's neighbor basically means struggling to make this world resemble as closely as possible the future world that we hope for and that we are already in the process of constructing. Um, I, I read that bit just to just to demonstrate that this is not any type of like liberal social justice type of Christianity, but but it is in fact a real socialist Christianity, and it's I think important to draw that distinction out in a world uh, like or like you know in a place like the United States where like so much of Christianity uh, gets kind of shoved into this like sort of social justice area rather than a real uh, socialist movement. Yeah, that's right. And the Christians for Socialism were intentionally trying to articulate themselves as revolutionary Christians as opposed to uh, liberal reformist Christians. They had criticized the Christian Democrats in uh, Chile and uh, worldwide as the movement kind of spread, which, like you said, we'll talk more about later. Um, That was also a driving theme. Uh, Christians for Socialism in other countries were also critical of local Christian reformist political groups and tried to encourage a more revolutionary stance, which is a really fascinating moment in history and really encouraging. Like this actually happened for real in real life. (laughs) It's like, it's so, uh, it's so energizing that this is actually the case. Um, I guess one more kind of uh, theoretical note before we get into more of the discussion about the history. Um, It's, it's kind of worth noting that this exactly like this movement picks up on something that Che Guevara says. So it's like, it's not even like the impetus is of course Christian, but the, um, that bridge that is kind of, being built is uh coming from both sides so uh shay is pretty famous for saying uh i call him by his first name because like really good friends uh yeah (laughs) he says that the latin american revolution will be uh invincible once christians uh join it so like it's uh when when christians dare to make revolution uh in total commitment uh that the latin american revolution will be invincible and like christians for socialism is that type of movement where it's like kind of taking up that cue that like they need to be in this movement just alongside socialists um so uh this this bridge is being built i guess i think from both ends that it's not just like christians doing it but marxists are trying to reach out too in that way yeah and what's so fascinating about this document the declaration of the 80 priests is that there are so many moments throughout it where they are willing to make real positive statements about material processes that are really going on so it's not just a kind of theoretical document where they're like you know, maybe someday we'll be friends, Marxists and Christians. And so maybe there are points of contact between us in terms of doctrine or ideas or, or impulses. Uh, they're really aware of the difficulties of implementing socialism. Like there's a passage where they say, um, we feel that much sacrifice will be entailed in the implementation of socialism, that it will involve a constructive and united effort if we are to overcome our underdevelopment and to create a new society. 
Obviously enough, this will provoke strong resistance from those who will be deprived of their special privileges, hence the mobilization of the people is absolutely necessary. And that's a pretty amazing thing. They also go on to say, uh, we note that there are large groups of workers in favor of the changes taking place and who are benefiting from them, but who are not actively involving themselves in the processes that has already been initiated. The union of all workers, whatever their party loyalty may be, is crucial at this juncture. Our country is being offered a unique opportunity to replace the existing system of dependent capitalism and to promote the cause of the laboring classes throughout Latin America. I mean, that's, like, pretty wild that uh, they're just aware of all those things and trying really hard to find a way to organize people uh, politically as Christian priests. Uh, Yeah, it is really, really interesting. It's just such a jarring thing uh, to read uh, Christians who aren't reactionary for, like, once in my life. (laughs) I know. uh, It seems too good to be true, but it's not. It is true. Yeah. And good. (laughs) It is true and very good. That's right. (laughs) Um, the very, the very concluding, the concluding point of this, uh, this declaration, I think is also really good that I I really like, um, it's a strong conclusion. Um, it says, uh, it's a time full of risk, but also full of hope. We priests, like each and every Christian must do what we can to make our own modest contribution. That is why we have come together and reflect, uh, we've come together to reflect and prepare ourselves in this workshop on the participation of Christians and the implementation of socialism. Um, so they are, they're there for business, man. They're not just, not just saying things. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, so that declaration is really cool. It's not that long. We'll put it, uh, somewhere that you can find it probably in our tiny letter. Um, but what is also really fascinating is just the, uh, the historical kind of context that surrounds it. So it's not just priests who ended up participating in this. There's all kinds of lay people. Um, and then, even though the movement started as a kind of clerical movement, in some parts of Chile, it's mostly, uh, you know, radical priests trying to radicalize other people. And then in other parts of Chile, it's mostly like lay people who are trying to radicalize their clergy, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. We read a, a cool oral history um, of just this time period from 71 to 73. And they uh, pull out a lot of these kinds of um, really, really cool dimensions. Uh, did anything like stick out to you in that article, Matt? Uh, I mean, like a ton of stuff, I guess. Um, I think the thing that, that sticks out to me the most, though, um, is that, uh, okay, so um, it is not just like a movement of like sort of loosely affiliated people, but it is a movement with like a really strict discipline. Um, that was kind of surprising to me. Yeah, that's um, right. So it's, uh, okay, we're not experts on this whole movement yet, maybe someday, but um <laughs> It's not like a specifically Marxist-Leninist kind of movement, right? It's like not that – it doesn't have like that brand with it. It doesn't have like that sort of like uh, history and mode of organization that with that goes along with it. But it does have like a really rigorous set of discipline that maybe you kind of would expect from a Marxist-Leninist organization. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so let me just read this bit here that talks about like the monthly meetings of Christians for Socialism because it is, it is kind of intense. Um <laughs> Okay, so one of the most interesting points to me, I think, is that um, they have this this uh, in the oral history. They lay out this sort of declaration of principles that Christian uh, Christians for Socialism had in Chile. There's a lot of good, a lot of good principles in there, but it's also like pretty serious and pretty intense. Um, it's uh, it's not necessarily like I I don't really know exactly the sort of like all the ideologies playing uh, behind the scenes here. Uh, but it doesn't seem like Christians for Socialism was like a Marxist-Leninist movement or anything like that. Um, but it does have like a 
a level of intensity in terms of discipline and organization that is kind of characteristic of Marxist Leninist organizations. So I don't know exactly what to make of that, but um, in the uh, in the like the sort of Declaration of Principles, uh, they say a lot about monthly meetings and kind of like some like interesting interesting bits about sort of like the minutia of organization. Um, so I'm going to read this little piece here that's about those monthly meetings and kind of how seriously they took them. Um, and we can, I guess, talk about that. I, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. know exactly what to make of it. It's just like an interesting thing. Um, okay, so um, let me read this here. Uh, so it says, for example, after making clear the priority of the monthly meeting, um, it adds that if anyone should be unable to attend, they should notify one of the members of the governing committee, will, which will act as a revolutionary tribunal. If the absence should be considered unjustified, the member in question could be expelled from the community. Um, and then it goes on, uh, point nine, which makes it clear that no one has the right to be a member of the community unless he is a Christian and an active revolutionary. So in order to participate in the community, uh, in the community, members must reapply every month. This is, uh, <laughs> this is also wild, but then it gets really good. Okay. So the first two parts are like, oh my gosh, this is super intense. But then the, the last part gets like kind of good. And I guess, uh, demonstrates the need for this type of discipline. Um, the 11th and final point concludes that only revolutionary discipline can lead us to a revolutionary morality. Only a revolutionary morality can lead us to a revolutionary Christianity. Only a revolutionary Christianity can help us towards the liberation of man. So uh, building intensities about these monthly meetings, but we see, uh, I guess, uh, when it comes to the 11th point, that this type of discipline is regimented and intense because they're trying to create, like very intentionally uh, trying to create a very specific person like a sub, uh, specific subjectivity that you have to be a part of this community in a really involved way <laughs> what yeah, do you think that's Dean? right uh i also was struck by that when i was reading it i mean i almost couldn't believe it it's just the weirdest thing um but it's cool that they put it in there because as i was kind of thinking through christians for socialism in general i wondered how they might deal with problems of discipline because they're specifically positioning themselves against you know, left center or left liberal tendencies within Christianity. And there is a, uh, what you might call a desire on the part of left liberal people in general, I think, to appropriate revolutionary rhetoric and revolutionary yeah. aesthetics. And so it's it's really important, I think, for leftists to find ways to, you know, not, not like weed people out because they're bad or something, but just to... Uh, create a movement that is sustainable on the grounds that it actually wants to, you know, um, to move along rather than opening itself up in a way that is sort of naively um, bound to uh, like water down the idea. Yeah. So this was really fascinating to read that uh, one way in which they did that was having these meetings that were regular and making sure that people were committed to it and also trying to make sure that the people that were within it understood what they were doing and, I mean, it's a little much like reapplying for membership every single month is kind of a, a extremely funny um, pass fail for authenticity, I guess. <laughs> um, and you also have to imagine there couldn't have been that many of them to like try yeah. to, you know, weed through all those um, applications, monthly applications. But nevertheless, like it's a pretty cool idea. It's just a, a fascinating strategy. I mean, on the one hand, I agree with you, right, that it is a little bit much. But on the other hand, like it's actually not i mean like i, I don't know I'm just thinking, it's kind of like a it's kind of a funny uh it's kind of like a funny application of some some really evangelical values though 
like that's true uh, reapply every month or like recommit yourself to jesus at every altar call or something (laughs) it's like it's kind of the same thing if you think about it Um, yeah yeah the the cardinal santiago was right there's some real evangelical values in socialism (laughs) yeah i think that's a good way to read that actually (laughs) um i mean it is intense uh but at the same time it's not surprising to me that they kind of take this intense uh approach i mean the the folks that are behind this i mean i i don't i don't know exactly the demographics of the movement but these are 80 priests right that were like behind at least the um declaration so we we assume that there's a strong catholic contingent here um and there's no one that knows more about the formation of subjects and discipline <laughs> in the Catholic Church, right? Yeah, so, I mean, like, right. they, they know about spiritual formation. And they know, like, what works. And what works, I guess, is probably making people show up. And this is one way to do it. Yeah, that's true. Um, speaking of that, it being a kind of Catholic movement, at least in the beginning, um, I mean, there are Protestants who are involved in Christian socialism, especially around the world, but also in Chile. Uh, but it did start out unsurprisingly as a thickly Catholic movement by virtue of being in a thickly Catholic country. Yeah. And one interesting thing about this particular oral history, uh, is that it opens up just talking about how Vatican II was a really important moment for the church and it created oh, yeah. this principle of, of dialogue. And it's pretty cool because the way that it's articulated here is that the church decided dialogue is really important, but all of a sudden that meant Catholics were dialoguing with Marxists and real Uh dialogue changes people. Um, But even more, uh, more fascinating is that the author also talks about how in Chile, there were already uh, Catholic communities that were very close to Marxism. Uh, One thing that blew my mind was a mention of this thing called the Marxist Leninist dance of the Virgin del Carmen, which was apparently (laughs) a thing in the 1930s in Northern Chile. I don't know what is going on with that, but I would love to participate did you? Are there any videos? Are there any like? Uh, I I googled it uh, frantically this week, tr- desperately trying to find something. I mean, the problem is I don't speak or read or write in Spanish, so yeah, I don't know. If you do, please send us uh, anything you might be able to find. Um, I did confirm in at least a couple other books that this is a real thing. It's not just like <laughs> one guy uh, wish- doing some wishful thinking. Um, but in any case, the reason he brings it up is he was saying that was in the 30s and then Vatican II happened in the 60s. And what it meant is that these uh, Marxist and Christian connections that had already existed in some places were now finally, uh, it was like they had permission to be public. Right. And that permissiveness is what allowed something like Christians for Socialism to exist and not be immediately disciplined by the church hierarchy or something like that because, you know, they were taking very seriously the idea that um, the Catholic Church has decided that it's going to be be buds and uh, learn from other people outside of its own, you know, community, and that's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, that is really amazing. Um, and also, there's dancing. So that's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it, it's not my revolution if there's no dancing. I suppose. <laughs> Um, another cool thing about this oral history, and I alluded to this earlier, is that even though this was a clerical movement, Christians for Socialism in the beginning, it didn't end up being uh, restricted to the clergy. In fact, uh, as is so often the case with Catholic movements, the movement will only sustain itself by virtue of having people who are not priests participate in it, because priests can be disciplined and lay people have a little more um, leeway, I guess. Right. So uh, there's a cool thing in this article uh, where after after the author is talking about all these different points that you were just referring to, um, the author says, to sum up, these witnesses experienced the Christians for Socialism as a vanguard of the revolution with a strong sectarian flavor. 
as an illumination of the introduction of pastoral agents into the popular sectors which allowed them, together with the people, to work out a plan of liberation with a specific name, socialism, contrasting it critically with the project of the kingdom of God. As an autonomous experience within the Christians for Socialism, where the lay members were the protagonists and were not restricted by the confines of a clerical leadership excessively concerned with relations with the church. Um, I think that's just like also a very cool kind of moment is that in that declaration we read earlier, the priests make a point to say, you got to get the support of the people. And uh, they, you know, live that out. They actually tried really hard to do that. Right. Yeah, that is really neat. Um, Okay, so this is, I guess, uh, drawing to a close of this historical section right here, and we have to kind of note it because I guess it's not all it's not all like uh, dances and uh, cool cool rhetoric about Christianity and socialism. <laughs> uh, so this is in Chile, in Chile at least, this is kind of a short lived movement from 1971 to 1973, with obviously some like preceding um, relationships that we just kind of talked about. Um, so in 1973, uh, it's uh, 1973 is a relevant year because that's um, when the U.S.-backed dictator uh, Pinochet kind of stepped in and uh, there was a coup against Allende, um, which really sucks and is not good at all. Um, But what is worth noting uh, is that after the coup, um, this is from the Oral History article again. This is, I guess, uh, just a direct quote. After the coup, the hierarchy of the church issued a public condemnation of Christians for Socialism, which even today uh, many people do not understand because this constituted uh, kicking a man when he's down. <laughs> just kind of a funny way to put it. Um, <laughs> yeah. This has been interpreted as an olive branch to the new regime and created a negative image of Christians for Socialism, which has lasted until today. The pejorative assessment of... Uh, of um pierre bigo uh, i guess um somebody commenting on this reflects for us the official opinion of the chilean church there's nothing left for christians for socialism but their declarations remain as a testimony of a kind of collective insanity that took hold of some clergy in the latin america in latin america at that time um so this is i mean kind of like a negative ending uh to uh this kind of interesting movement that happened for a time in chile um and uh, that kind of, that comment at the end about how it uh, how it's a testimony to a kind of collective insanity. Um, at first, I read that and I'm like, well, like what a dumb thing to actually say. Like that's kind of reactionary. But then I kind of thought about it a little bit more. Um, and uh, probably for the folks on the other side of that coup, that is exactly how they felt about it. Like that socialism does not make any sense, right? That they are they yeah. are. Um, this is uh, the um, the public condemnation of the Christians for socialism is of course. Um, uh, a logic that cannot make any sense of socialism whatsoever. They can't. They can't see the value of it. So of course they think it's a type of insanity, um, because uh, for w- what is sane for regular people, socialism is insane for people who want to accrue nothing but profits and private property and uh, right. exploit other people. So of course that makes sense. Yeah. The biggest irony, of course, being that Chile would go on to be the experimental laboratory for the Chicago School of Libertarian Economics and uh, brutally ravaged that country. Yeah, um, so talk, talk in, about an insanity, really. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Chile is a very tragic kind of country in that sort of way, a huge victim of American interests, um, as in so many Latin American countries. Uh, but it is wild that in that same country there was a place or there was a thing called Christians for Socialism. Um, just an amazing, amazing thing. Yeah. Um, in in the coming weeks, we'll talk a little bit more about like what happened to this movement post Chile, uh, because it does um, it does spread um, outside of Chile. So it's it, it ended up being um, 
you know the the events of of Chile sowed sowed the seeds for um, a bigger uh, bigger Christian movement that we'll talk about in the future. But um, I guess just want to like put that little like glimmer of hope in there that this is not all for naught or anything. This isn't it wasn't just like a failed a failed thing. It uh, actually went on to be more. But um, in the case of Chile, uh, American imperialism uh, squashed this movement. So that history uh, is from a guy named David Fernandez. We didn't really mention that at first. I don't know. Probably should have done that. But here's shout out to David Fernandez. Um, yeah, thanks yeah. for this article. <laughs> you did it. Um, and it's very good. We'll put like a citation to that and everything also in the tiny letter so you can find it and read it. It's really fun. Um, pretty short, easy to read. Uh, but there's also some stuff we were reading from this guy uh, Gonzalo Arroyo. I mean, we were doing all this research trying to figure out more about the movement. And this guy just kept coming up. It turns out he's a Chilean Jesuit who was also a Marxist economist. Uh, he has a PhD in economics, and he was a member of the Christians for Socialism from you know the beginning, and then continued to write and think about it later on. Um, so we found a document from 1973, which is uh, what he calls a Christian response to Christians for Socialism, which is a title that I love. <laughs> yeah. And then also we found an interview in 1974. So after the Pinochet government had been installed um, with uh, Blackfriars, New Blackfriars, which is a radical Catholic uh, Dominican journal. So, uh, Matt, do you want to just talk a little bit about the Christian response? Uh, I just thought that was such a great, great title for like a little uh, reflection. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, yeah. So I think the the sort of functional purpose uh, this has that it just kind of gives us a little bit more of an idea about the sort of like character of the movement. Um, but you know, like I said earlier, it wasn't, it's, it's not like a, a Marxist Leninist movement. So kind of figuring out the ideology and like what's all happening there behind the scenes is, uh, I think important for me, um, and for this podcast, just because it's like what we're all about. Um, so, uh, we pulled out a few, a few good quotes from this Ariario, uh, Christian response, uh, essay that I think are kind of telling that kind of gives us more of an idea about what this movement was like. Um, so let me read this piece here and we can kind of talk about it. Uh, okay, so Arroyo says, uh, from its own definition, we thus derive that Christians for Socialism is not a political party in any of the countries in which it operates, nor does it take the place of political parties which uh, which struggle in the interest of people. Neither is it forthright acting to seize power that would compete or replace the vanguard uh, uh, the vanguard political movements in each country. While Christians for Socialism does not operate directly on the structures of society, the realm in which it does it does operate is that of affecting people's consciences. Consciences. Oh my gosh. Uh, especially the Christian's conscience. Uh, to this end, uh, it organizes grassroots communities in the form of secretariats. These are uh, not movements, but places of encounter for all Christians of the uh, of the left who seek unity among the people. These are places where people put together experience and information where people try to unmask the past manipulations of the Christian faith, which are often caused by capitalism. These manipulations have alienated many Christians from the revolutionary process. Though it's uh, secretariats, uh, Christians for Socialism is trying to redress the imbalance and to discuss revolution on less alien terms. Okay, so I really appreciate this description of like what's going on because, again, it's not like... It's not like uh, uh, laying out sort of the ideology behind the party necessarily or not i'm sorry not even the party um it's not <laughs> it's not laying out the ideology behind the movement but it's kind of telling you like how it works and like what's going on right. there and what the function of these places are right so it's um 
they set up like actual places where people can talk about Christianity and socialism and like what it means to be a revolutionary um, and like ways that Christianity has acted against uh, like the, the good of the people in some pretty interesting ways. Um, so I think that uh, you can see the, the social function behind all of this. Um, and you get to see a little bit of like the, like what's actually happening, like maybe at these monthly meetings that you, that you have to go to. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's cool on a lot of fronts. I like I like the idea though that it's like it's not replacing it's not a party, it's not replacing a party, it's not trying to seize power, it's not doing anything of the of the kind. All it is is it's like sort of like a an element of a cultural revolution, uh, trying to create a cultural shift in Christians and the uh the ways that they think about politics. And that's something I can really appreciate. Yeah, it's cool that it's you know, it serves a lot of functions at the same time. It's a kind of educational apparatus where it's trying to help Christians understand both their own faith, the way in which that their faith has been mobilized toward uh, ends that are not very good, uh, but also possibilities for their own faith, you know. So the idea is that, well, you just have to abandon it because it's a reactionary bourgeois phenomenon, but you can actually find resources within the Christian tradition to you know, uh, support leftist causes and you can help those leftist causes make sense to other Christians. I think that's a really interesting thing. It's this network of people who are basically just trying to talk to each other and find ways of strategically being useful, um, ways of building each other up and building up their societies. Uh, I think there's a cynical way of understanding Christians for socialism where you look at it as a, um, you know, just a tool used by the Allende government or something, or just a... Yeah, uh, like a propaganda machine or something for Christians. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that's the um, case, though. Yeah, that's the most fascinating thing, is it's absolutely not the case. Um, yeah. They were vilified that way. In the oral history, they talk about how um, there are a variety of ways people tried to kind of write them off. Um, but as you can see in something like this, uh, as Arroyo is explaining it, um, it's just these are Christians who think that authentically to be a Christian means to get involved, you know, get your hands dirty with the material processes that are happening right in front of you, even and maybe especially when they're not driven by Christians. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about like that, um, like that definition about what Christians for socialism is in that Arroyo piece? Because I think that's a, a good point here. Yeah. So there's a moment where Arroyo is dealing with some of the ways that Christians for socialism has been vilified ideologically. And he says, in response, we ought to listen to Christians for Socialism define its own position. First, the group defines itself as Christians deeply committed to the struggle for liberation of the oppressed in Latin America, and also to the liberation struggle of the third world at large. For these Christians, and this has come out not out of faith, but out of political judgment, this struggle consists of the destruction of capitalism in order to build in its place a new socialist society. Second, as a group, these Christians do not conduct party-oriented political action, but they do have an obvious political importance because they conduct a struggle in ideology and because they call the Christian conscience in Latin America and around the world. Third, Christians for Socialism defines itself by the act of living in small, new communities, almost invariably closer to the people, communities through which it seeks to conduct a new way of living and of expressing faith in Christ. Um, all those things are very cool. The last thing is interesting to me because, uh, as we've talked about before in the podcast, um, you know, when we were becoming formative Christian thinking people, adults, uh, in one way or another, um, new monasticism was a big thing and yeah. things like 
the Catholic worker was still, you know, popular in like young people's memories. And those are all very good. Like those are cool things. I don't mean to disparage them, but what's really fascinating about this is that it seems like something that's analogous to that, except with explicit revolutionary ends, which neither of those other two uh, right. movements are necessarily so, as uh, concerned with. Yeah. So Shane Claiborne, get at us. Let's do, let's do this, man. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fix your ideology first and then we'll then we'll talk i guess actually but yeah. <laughs> well uh, we'll fix each other's ideology you know we'll, I suppose all, that's all, right. we'll all get yeah. together and sort it out uh but within the context of revolutionary struggle <laughs> yeah <laughs> um what 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 strikes you about that matt um the way that arroyo has sort of articulated them defining their own position yeah i think that's good um it's it's uh actually i mean you know we've been we've been kind of getting into this more lately um behind the scenes of the magnificast uh but we see this kind of this idea pop up a lot in their literature about how important it is to actually just listen to like what they were saying and like what their actual positions are. Um, I think that it's it seems almost like a requirement of every piece we've read about Christians for Socialism to define that they're not actually a party and that they're like some, yeah, some kind of like, you know, parapolitical, parachurch organization. Um, and I think that's that's good. And that's worth noting. Um, I, I guess like what are like what struggle like what? sticks out to me though is uh two things so um first and foremost that like they're real practicing christians like doing this <laughs> doing this work yeah um who are like committed and like are actually like mobilizing together to do this which is i mean again in my imagination completely wild um the thing that right. i do love about it too is that like um there's like this movement that you see a lot a sort of rhetorical movement and ideological movement that's worth pulling out here um that is like to to be a person to be like a to be a good christian who's engaged in the world is also to be a good christian who's like looking for the destruction of capitalism and that is yeah, so that's right. uh, so <laughs> good for me as a person <laughs> uh, i like that a lot um that they they make that rhetorical connection between those things um something that just i mean christians in the united states can't even imagine they can't even they can't even imagine how their faith would be that political or how they could translate like I don't know the Sermon on the Mount or the Gospel or any like any like um, like foundational ethical teachings from the Bible and make them like political in any systemic way. Like Christians in America in the United States can't figure that out, but like we see people doing it right here in front of us, and it's uh, important, and we should pay attention to this so much. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. It is kind of crazy to imagine Christians who are capable of understanding the material conditions around them and then jumping into them. Uh, I don't know. That's just uh, a wild thing. It is. What's important, I guess, is that um, Christians for Socialism is articulated as neither neither being um, like neither being the church, uh, sort of in the big sense, and it's also not a party. Um, but uh, Christians for Socialism, Arario uh, goes on to say, is quite conscious of like that that uh, that fact that they're neither you know the church as a whole and they're neither a party as a whole. It's sort of like in this like interstitial space. Uh, between those things so uh, ario goes on to say that christians for socialism is quite conscious of and realistic about its relationship with the church it recognizes that in general the masses in latin america clearly perceive the voice of the church and therefore uh, of christ as incarnate as the uh, in the church symbols which are centered in the bishops and the clergy hence the group has never closed itself off from the hierarchy of the church both for reasons of faith and in order to ensure greater effectiveness in its actions toward the liberation of men. So this is also interesting to me, too, because it's not like they're even being, they're not trying to, while they're not a part of the church and they're not a part of the party, um, you know, 
this organization isn't a part of both, either of those things that they're kind of in between it doesn't seem like they're like actually closed off to either of those things either like they're not trying to be yeah, separatists right. they're not trying to like um they're not trying for like another reformation or another schism which i think is important uh, uh is an important caveat for the Ca- the catholics uh, in the crowd there um that they're not trying <laughs> to get away from the church but they're trying to um they're trying to be open on one end to uh the hierarchy of the church because those symbols are important and that hierarchy is important for them uh, so yeah. it's it's good that they're, they're they're not thinking through this in any kind of shallow way or any utopian way. They're really open to I think all of the um, the organizations that they're kind of connected to. Yeah, that's right, and I appreciate that. There's a there's a realism about the fact that they want to be connected to the church itself, not just uh, because of their faith, which is kind of a given, I guess. You know, it, like. If you uh, if you give them any benefit of the doubt, you assume that they're trying to be faithful Christian people. And I think yeah. that should be a given anyway. Um, so I like that they reiterate that. But even, I guess, more interestingly, they want to be connected to the church because they understand that it has a real symbolic power for uh-huh. the people, like for the masses. And kind of treating the church as like a people's movement in that way and trying to connect with things that connect with the people is such a fascinating thing. I feel like that would be something that the left might be able to learn from Christians for Socialism is that yeah. uh, there is a symbolic weight in Christian authorities and whether or not you believe them or believe in them is kind of irrelevant. Uh, they do hold um, real tangible uh, organizing power. Yeah, that's right. Um, when um, when we see this movement uh, move to the United States in some ways, that becomes like one of the central themes of the writing from the folks that were involved. I don't want to tip the hand too much, but um uh when uh when christians for socialism got uh organized in the united states one of like the big topics of conversation that they had um was about the reappropriation of christian symbolism and like um making that work uh for revolutionary ends i think that's rather than capitalist ends you know so um it's a theme it's a theme that persists throughout some of this writing that's right so uh there's a conclusion to this response essay which uh really draws on these symbols in a way that sort of performs maybe what we were just talking about uh do you want to read that real quick and then we can go on to the interview where he had with the uh the black friars yeah yeah sure it's a good conclusion um i mentioned the very beginning of this in the, in the beginning of the episode but i'll do it again here because it's that good <laughs> yeah <laughs> when christians dare to make a revolutionary commitment that is total says che guevara then the latin american revolution will be invincible Christians for Socialism is just one gathering of Christians who are attempting to make an integral revolutionary commitment. We are en marca with the poor and exploited, uh, those whose victory will be the victory of the whole people. Sin and human weakness reaches into all of us like the most bitter cold and slows down the march toward final victory. But now, as always, God is acting to bring us closer to the goal. The day we hope for will surely come, a day when Christ and all humanity will triumph. So it's that connection between Christian eschatology and socialism that I think is like already latent in socialism, but it's being brought out here and really mobilizing that idea. Um, it's so it's so funny even to use this language because I I can't even count the amount the amount of times I was I've been sitting in church um, on like a Sunday morning and the, like the the pastor has said something even similar though like God is acting to bring <laughs> us closer to our goal, right? The day the yeah, day yeah. the day will come when Christ and humanity will triumph, and it's like <laughs> like hell yeah, but like but that's actually communism here. So that's like funny. Uh, it's, yeah, just yeah. Like, it's weird. That's a, it's a phrase that I've heard a million times. Um, that's us- that usually refers to like the rapture or something silly like that, uh, but mobilized towards right. something that is actually good. So I appreciate it. Yeah, that. that's right. No, I like that a lot. Um, 
Yeah, and that eschatological vision is such a motivating force, right? In Christianity, it carries a symbolic weight, but yeah. um, I mean, Marxism also has its own eschatological component, and it's cool to kind of see those two things being put together here. Yeah, I think so. Well, so the the next kind of bit we talked we we looked at here to investigate more about Christians for socialism is again from Gonzalo Arroyo. Um, it's a an interview in New Black Friars, and um, it's interesting for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of uh, similar things going on. I think in this article, I'm sorry, in this interview, uh, I think like maybe the most I don't know one of one of uh, the most edifying moments in this interview that I want to pull out here at the very beginning of this this part of the the podcast is um, that when the interview opens up, it's not immediately about Christians for Socialism. Instead, the interviewer yeah. asks Ario, <laughs> like, what are actually the most pressing concerns? Like, uh, globally, I mean, specifically for Latin America, like, what are the most, what are the most pressing concerns? Um, and the way Ario responds is good and really interesting because what he lays out are, I think, some pretty common leftist concerns. And But, but because he is an economist, he has um, a really, I think, nuanced way of talking about them um that, that's cool um but like the framing for each um like the content of each is, is definitely a leftist concern but the framing is always informed by christianity when he talks about it and i think that's really worth yeah, noting right. so like when he's laying out these concerns he's like going through them and like ecology is a concern and inflation is a concern um and like but so is like food and hunger so like that that kind of stuck out to me the the that he that he pulls out food and hunger as um an important concern because like that is like a fundamentally christian concern yeah that's um, right like feeding feeding the the hungry and like um like giving relief to the the poor is like a is something that you could walk into any evangelical church and just be like, Hey, this is what I'm for. And people would be like, Oh yeah, sounds good. Right. But um, he frames the problem as a, a a problem that is both Christian. It's a Christian concern, um, but it's connected to the problem of global capitalism. And like, that's that uh, connection is, I guess what's always missing from Christianity to me whenever I go to church is that we can, um, you know, we obviously want to feed people who are hungry because like, of, of course that you, of course you do that. Um, but we can never make that connection to global capitalism and that RRO does this and that the movement does this in general is um, absolutely astounding and amazing to me. Yeah, uh, there's a great comment later on in the interview um, where Arroyo talks about uh, basically why the church is not capable of making that connection. Yeah. Um, this is on page 495, but he says, uh, the churches in general are not aware of the crucial problems and challenges confronting humanity today and tomorrow. They're quite simply incapable of understanding why there are millions of persons who, in the international socioeconomic framework discussed above, experience suffering, repression, and death. Whereas the Christian communities, as founded by Jesus Christ, ought to be the conscience of humanity and the salt of the earth, they appear at the moment as being in bondage to history. They receive blows, but they give none. That's a wild thing to say. Yeah. Uh, even when the most fundamental rights of man are flouted, as for example in torture and repression in the European fascist countries, they remain incapable of reacting. Of course, there are dotted here and there some bishops able to intervene with prophetic courage, but the hierarchies, and one must indeed speak chiefly of these when one refers to the church as an institution, remain in general incapable of exercising an enlightened leadership. In face of the world problems of our time, inflation, population, food shortage, and so on, thrown up by the very structures of international capitalism, they have difficulty in breaking out of an abstract discourse in which words like democracy, liberty, justice, peace, play the role of an opiate at the very moment when humanity is in a world crisis where its own survival is at stake 
They seem to have abdicated their responsibility to be a moral force to orient humans, or at least Christians. In other words, the churches are no longer salt. And, I mean, that's such a, like, it's incisive as a critique. I mean, it you know, it burns a little bit, but it's also, yeah. I, I think, really, it, it gets everything out on the table in the way that it ought to be said. Right, right. Um, he, he also goes on to say that there are reasons that the church is, like, institutionally allied with capitalism, like, materially. But yeah. I think that uh, in terms of just a moral conscience, that really uh, helps. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, this is the same kind of sentiment we see in, like, Herbert McCabe and stuff, too, that Christians just, like, we, we, like, know how to respond to people, but we can't, like, think about the larger way that people, like, that we should, right? Like, we can, we can think about, like, the um the ethical the ethical implications about like loving your neighbor and like how, and why you should do that but we can't fundamentally think through who our neighbor even is in a systemic way that can um, right. make any good analysis and affect any in any like systemic change um and uh i don't know every time someone can make that point i think it's worth it um it's worth yeah, doing that's right yeah, and I just think I think I just really appreciate Arroyo uh, laying it out as simply as he does. You know that the church is supposed to be salt, and it just isn't. Um, yeah, I really, I mean, that line that I kind of pulled out as I was reading it. You know, the church receives blows but give none. Uh, that's such a, uh, I mean, it is a very punchy phrase in itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, to wrap this conversation up, let me refer back to something we said last week. Um, at the end of the podcast, uh, we had that quote um, towards the end uh, from Dorothy Soleil about, um, you know, maybe you feel like you are a Christian without a church or a socialist without a party. Um, and I think that resonated with a lot of people uh, that heard it. Uh, we saw some GIF reactions that indicated that is the case, at least. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, there is, uh, I think, a little bit, like, maybe like a word of advice here from RIO. Uh, to all of us uh, Christians in America who feel that way, who feel without a church and without a party for sure. Um, uh, so Ario says, we pursue a task in the church. We aim at a church in solidarity with the interests and struggles of the workers, but without breaking with the present church. If we want to gather together and form a group as Christians inserted in the heart of the organized proletariat, it is firstly to cultivate our faith, to make our hope dynamic, to develop our theology. Our task is, first of all, a task as a church, as Christians. Admittedly, at present, many of the hierarchy tend to treat us as marginal, saying to us, you cannot continue uh, in that line, for it's, not, uh, for it's not the church's line. And the hierarchies are justified to the extent that the church to uh, which they refer, uh, as it we've analyzed above, the church that uh, as it is reactionary. As for us, we wish to maintain a commitment to church solidarity. Even if we admit that our position is difficult in the short term, we think that in the medium and long terms, it will appear more clearly in the eyes of a growing number of the faithful as a service to the church and a service to the authentic message of Jesus Christ, which summons Christians to identify themselves with the oppressed, struggling for their liberation and simultaneously for the liberation of all mankind. Um, so uh, I, I guess uh, the the moral of the story here in relationship to the disconnection that leftists might find and face in their individual and particular church, churches is that like um it is hard in the short term to get people to kind of be on board with whatever it is you want to do but um this is actually the mission of the church in the first place the liberation of humans um from from sin and especially as it uh, presents itself as capitalism 
So um, even though it might be hard to get people on your side, I think that this is the work that we ought to be involved in. Yeah, that's right. And I think, too, um, Arroyo goes on to say, in addition to the task in the church, that Christians for Socialism also pursues a political task. And this might help, too. Uh, He says, this task is not that of an avant-garde and is situated in a restricted sector of the global political field, namely that of culture and ideology. Our business is not to constitute a new political organ. We are already inserted within autonomous organizations, which the workers have made for themselves, and it is there that we must continue to struggle in solidarity with companions who do not share our faith. And then at the very end, he says, more positively, it's a matter of showing by our practice as much as by our words that the Christian faith can and must become more and more at home in a socialist option, even if it cannot become enclosed within that option. And I think, uh, you know, being a uh, Christian socialist um, without a church, without a party, uh, one solution to that is just to go to both of them. (laughs) Yeah. Like find a church, find a party or uh, an organization, an association, whatever it is, a strike, uh, something that you can go to. I mean, in my own experience, like we've talked about this in the past, I guess, uh, with with a number of guests, but it really does help kind of solve that alienated feeling to get out and meet other people and actually do something and feel like you've contributed to, you know, a material struggle either in the short term in terms of like one local strike or one local advocacy campaign or uh, in the long term of building a party and thinking with party members and paying party dues and all that kind of a thing. Like uh, there are already organs out there for you to be part of. The church is a thing. It's a hard thing to be part of, but it's a thing that needs socialists and uh, also socialist parties are things that are out there that you can join uh, quite easily and they might actually need Christians. So I think that's a a really tangible step you can take. And the coolest thing is that uh, you wouldn't be the first person to do it. Ah, You would be one in a long, long line of people in a very big cloud of witnesses who have already done it. That's right. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon. We'll send you one of those good, good buttons when we get them in the mail. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also subscribe to our tiny letter. We referred to that a couple times in this episode. That's tinyletter.com slash the Magnificast. You can also find us on Twitter at the Magnificast Surprise. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Um, same uh, same name and uh we don't post that very often as we revealed but maybe maybe we'll change that maybe this is the the embarrassing moment we needed to uh to get our our stuff together um thanks for listening like matt said a few times we're gonna find uh more about this movement and a global movement we'll continue to be inviting guests and all that kind of thing but uh we're just we're on the train. We're on the Christians for Socialism train, and we are not getting off till we've uh, made all the stops. So choo choo, uh, we'll take you along. That's right, choo choo, <laughs> choo choo to socialism and uh, and Christianity. Um, all right, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. I don't wanna get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth, and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord